um, have crossed over the halfway mark of our Ephesians series. Who's been enjoying it so far? You've been loving diving into the Word of God. Uh, I, I find that the, when we do these book studies, that people seem to really get excited about the Word of God. And I love that. I think it's so cool. And we've crossed the halfway mark because uh, Ephesians has six chapters. We've done three chapters. Today, we're not going to do the whole of Ephesians 4 because it is actually quite a dense chapter and there's a lot that I want to talk about. Um, and so we are going to get started straight away. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so this is Paul uh, setting up what the next few chapters are going to look like. He's saying, I'm going to show you a life that is worthy of the call that you have received. What is this call that you have received? This call is that you've been called into the body of Christ. It's very clear from the first three chapters. It's not a call for you to be comfortable and relaxed because now you have salvation and eternal life and so you can do whatever you want for the rest of your days on this earth. No. Paul's very clear. You have been saved for a purpose. You have been saved to be part of this new humanity, which includes being part of the body of Christ. Okay, And so we'll read about what it means to be living in the body of Christ in a moment. But I want to point something else out uh, that really stood out to me as I read this. In Ephesians 3, uh, the first portion of it last week as we talked about it, uh, I spoke about how Paul needed to talk about his status as a prisoner of Rome. Do you remember that? He needed to explain that him being a prisoner was not a bad thing. Him being a prisoner was actually a great thing for people. But here in Ephesians 4, he brings up this whole prisoner thing again, but now he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner of Christ. And I think that that's extremely significant because in our lives, we can view what we do. We can view our natural circumstances with, uh, I guess, labels and, and, and what we see as our reality. So, for example, you can see yourself as a student and you say, I am a student and so this is what I have to do. I am a parent and this is what I have to do. I am a um, the breadwinner of my family, this is what I have to do. This, I am an employee, this is what I have to do. This, I am a business owner, this is what I have to do. We attach what we have to do to these different uh, uh, positions, status, roles uh, that we describe for ourselves. Am I right? We use these as a shortcut for understanding the parameters of our life. When I'm a student, I know that I'm meant to be spending 20 hours a week per unit studying stuff. That is what they tell us that we are meant to be doing. I never did that and I never will. Um, but, you know, that, that's what we are told. We are given parameters. And, and Paul has a parameter. He has a role. He is a prisoner. But Paul does something which is so small, but I believe will radically shift the way that you live. Because he adds two words, of Christ. Perhaps if we add the word of Christ, or maybe because of what it is, you add the word for Christ to your role that you are living out. How does that change things? Imagine that you think to yourself, I am a student for Christ. How does that change what I'm doing this week when I go to uni or school or college? I change my status. I am an employee of Christ. For Christ. 
how does that change your circumstance? When we use all of these roles and we take Christ out, we are doing something that the early church had to battle with, and that was the divide between the secular and the sacred. That we're saying that this is my work. This is my family. These are my friends. These are my tribe. This is what I do. God, you get those things, but this is mine. And we do it very subtly. We do it without even really thinking about it because our, our society is set up so that we go to church on Sundays. And that's why we don't, we, I try my best not to use it, it slips out all the time. But I don't say that we go to church because we are not going to church, we are going to a church gathering on a Sunday morning. That's why we call these Sundays our Sunday gathering, because we are gathering as the church. But Mondays to Saturdays, it doesn't mean that the church doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that the sacred is put off just for the Sundays. But the sacred is in every day, and I need to work out how to get my brain to understand that Christ is still in my workplace. Christ is still in my family. Christ is still in my schooling. Christ is everywhere. I just need to become aware of it. So try that for yourself. I am a father for Christ, not of Christ. Be really careful with that word. How am I fathering? And I think that that is something that when, when I was putting this together, I thought about it. In my everyday parenting of Sam, if I started to see that my parenting was not my parenting for myself, but I'm parenting for Christ, how does that begin to change things? Well, I started to think, what does Sam need in order for him to grow up to know Christ? What does Sam need in order that he can encounter Christ, even as an 18, 20-month-old, whatever he is right now? I lose track. And um, in my workplace, am I just keying some data into the computer? Or is there something more that Christ would have me do today? Paul, the prisoner of Rome, or Paul, the prisoner of Christ? He chose to see that his prisonership did not determine his identity and his value. It did not determine his behaviors and his attitudes. Rather, he changed that and he said, I am a prisoner of Christ. And that determines how I see my life. All right? So we're going to do that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later this morning. But I just thought, man, that's such a small little phrase. But I'm like... What would it have taken? No, not, none of us here are prisoners. All of us in this room have a lot more freedom than Paul did when he wrote this letter. But some of us are a lot more caught up in the roles and the parameters that society has given to us than Paul ever was. That's something that we, he found a freedom while in prison. I think that's absolutely powerful for us to capture for ourselves. He goes on to say, uh, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a lot of ones and alls in this. It kind of feels like an old school uh, data program. All, one, one, all, zero, one, one, zero, zero. Anyway, it's not... That's the whole point of what Paul is saying. And I want you to see this, right? Because 
Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. He's like, yes, tell me, Paul, how am I supposed to live this life that you um, are saying I'm meant to live? You know, God has given me this amazing life. Am I supposed to be powerful? Am I supposed to be authoritative? Am I supposed to be a miracle worker? Am I supposed to be uh, this? Be completely humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing one another in love. You know, has someone ever said, um, you know, Nate, at the end of your life on your tombstone is written, this guy was completely humble and gentle. I would chuck a fit. I would be like, this is lame. I want to do something more significant, right? Like, I mean, some of you maybe are more Christian than I am, but like, seriously. I don't want my life to be characterized as being humble and gentle. It's kind of the lame Christian stuff. And as a Pentecostal, I think, as a Pentecostal church, I think many of us are like, man, God, what's this glorious call to which you've called me to? Let me go do that. I want to lead. I want to, I want to do something significant. I want to be effective for the kingdom. And Paul says, you want to live a life worthy of the call, be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. And the reason why Paul is saying that is because Paul is saying that as part of a new humanity, there's a very key thing that we need to realize, that the primary thing that we are called to is unity. The primary thing each and every one of us are called to when we accept God's call is a call to be united to His body. Those character traits are necessary not nice things to have, absolutely necessary for us to be united in the body of Christ. They are not just nice Christian things. They are character traits of people who are part of the body of Christ. I don't know how to emphasize this more, but this is Paul saying, without these things, there is no body of Christ. Without these things, there's a whole bunch of individualistic nutcases that are running around thinking that God loves them. No, no, no. We are meant to be united as the body of Christ. And so you humble yourself. You put aside your personal call in order that you understand that you've been called to the body of Christ. You be gentle because people need you to be gentle. Yeah. My tone right now is not very gentle, but I hope that the message is <laughs> that we are called to be a part of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, make every effort not to evangelize the world, that's important. But Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here we have it. Paul is emphasizing once again that the primary thing that we are called to, the thing that we need to put effort, you know when someone says that you need to put effort in, it's because it's going to be difficult. You don't go to a gym and says, and, and your gym says, oh, uh, your, your, your PT says, you need to put effort into these reps, and you're doing it, and it's like, it's like, what are you talking about? I don't need effort because this is easy. Your PT says, you need to put an effort because it is going to be hard. And so what Paul says, you need to put an effort into, what does he say? Is to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Unity in a body is one of the hardest things for us to ever achieve. 
Unity in the body is something that is not natural to our human condition. Unity in the body is something that we are going to have to be aware of and work towards. It is something that we are called to and we need to do it and it's going to be difficult. Now, I started to look into some of these words and I thought that the phrase uh, a bond of peace was a little bit interesting. I started to look into it. And so the word bond means to bind, uh, you know, is what we use to bind. And, and, and the, the meaning of the word peace uh, also, uh, the root meaning of the word that is used to talk about peace is also to bind. Two different Greek words, same meaning. So if I was to read this in the, uh, uh, closer to the Greek language, it might say something like, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of, that bind us together. The bonds that bind. The bonds that bind. It's kind of weird. We, we think of peace as this um, harmony, right? There's, there's quietness, there's lack of conflict. Uh, but I've started to realize that biblical peace, biblical harmony is very different to how we see it in today's world. We can easily, on one Sunday morning for a couple of hours, learn how to be polite with one another so that there is no fighting. Fair enough? Some of you are thinking, oh, that's a struggle. And it's like, we'll pray for you after. But it's easy enough for me to be polite with you, to skim on the surface. We don't go deeper than that, guys, because that's where the dark stuff is. We don't want to go there because that's where the conflict is going to come up. Right, we stay on the surface, and on a Sunday morning, we can look like we have peace, but we're not tr truly bonded together. You see, that picture that I started to get when I was looking at this, the bonds that bind, is this sense that we are so connected with one another that we actually want to stick together. There is this sense that, you know, the outside forces trying to pull us apart is not going to pull us apart. You know, one of the saddest things for me as a pastor when I have to deal with uh, marital issues is that there are some Christians well-meaning Christians who say, you know, we are married and therefore we have to stay together, we are never going to get divorced, but I look at the way that they live and they have the marital bond, the, 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 the commitment that they have verbally set to stay together, but they are not staying together face-to-face, -to -face, bonded together so that people can't pull them apart, but they are simply staying in the same house. But they don't know anything about each other, they don't know anything about each other's strengths and weaknesses. They don't know how to encourage one another. They don't know how to lift one another up. They don't know how to spur one another on to greater things. They don't know how to champion one another. They don't know how to truly be bonded together because all they have been working on is to stay together. You can stay together and hate each other. I have seen Christian marriages where people stay together and they hate each other's guts. I have heard of marriages that say, yes, we're married, pastor. We're all good. You are living in different bedrooms because you hate the sight of each other in the morning. And it's so easy to creep into that in our society today where we rock up and we put on our church face and we look like we all are all nice and play nice, but deep inside, are you truly bonded to one another? 
When someone in this church is suffering, we all should be suffering. When someone in this church family is struggling, we have all got something within us that says, I need to do something. If you don't have that, you are not bonded within the church. And that's why unity is difficult. That's why unity within the body is difficult because you get to know each other and you start to smell each other stink. And you start to know, man, why are you like that? Why are you so annoying? And it's also scary. Man, I don't know if I want to give you the opportunity to push my buttons. I don't want to give you the opportunity to see my scars and my wounds. You see, there's something about the bonds of peace that we need to capture because Paul says we need to make every effort. Maybe a picture that comes to mind is that, you know, like Lego blocks, they actually fit together. And you know, there are some of those blocks that fit together even better than other blocks. It's especially those thin ones, right? You know, everyone knows what I'm talking about, the thin Lego blocks that you go together and they never come apart. It's like they're stuck together for life. I think that's the picture that we're supposed to be getting. It's not just that we play nice, but that we're actually bonded together. We don't need super glue, we don't need anything artificial, but just the way that we fit in with one another causes us to be bonded together. That's why our church has a core value and the lift is a place where your name matters because we're just using that as a metaphor because I believe that your name is, is a nice picture that captures your past, your present, and your future. It captures your story. And at Lyft, we want to know your name and we want you to know other people's names. If you're in this church, and this is pet peeve, all right? Don't come to me and ask me about who, who's that person, what's their name? Go talk to them. What am I? Your walking database? Your PA? No, get to know other people. Ask someone else out for coffee. Have people over for dinner. Do life together. Learn how to like each other. Learn how to love one another. Make every effort, not some effort, not the minimum effort, but every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. And so Paul then goes on to talk about a whole bunch of ones. We're called to uh, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is Paul trying to say here by using all of these ones? He's saying that we have this oneness there's unity because we are brought into this oneness. We don't have different gods and different factions. We don't have different faiths so that we have different silos. We have one God, one faith, one hope, one spirit. And that oneness is enough for us to know there is more similar amongst us than are different. There is more to protect that is common amongst us than there are differences. And so often what the enemy will do is that he'll come in and he'll say, you're different. In today's language and in today's society, he'll say, you're unique. And because you're unique, you need to protect your uniqueness. That's what society will tell you. You just be you. What the heck does that mean? Be an idiot? Sure. I'll slap you around. <laughs> Why do you get to be an idiot just because it's being unique? Anyway, sorry, I don't know where that came from. Uh, but, but 
what, we, what Paul's saying is that we protect this unity, the body of Christ, because there is this oneness that we all come from. We protect the unity. Not God. We. Your call is to protect this. Not just this, but the whole body of Christ. That is something we make every effort to do because there's more in common. Now, I just want to make a really, really, really quick note because running out of time, but it says in there one baptism, and that is something that comes up as a theological uh, controversy because as Pentecostals, we actually believe in two baptisms. We believe in a baptism in water, and then we believe in a subsequent um, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And um, so some people will say, no, 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 there's only one baptism because that's what Paul says, and so there can't be a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what I uh, answer to that. There are two separate acts of baptism, but there's one key baptism. There's one symbolic baptism. See, when the Bible uh, uh, talks about baptism, it goes back and it draws on a picture of the Israelites going through the Red Sea, uh, escaping from the Egyptians and moving into freedom. And that is a picture of baptism. What the picture of baptism is, is a status change. We as Christians undergo one status change, and that is slaves to sin, and now we are free in Christ. That is the status change. We do that, and symbolically, we do that through water baptism because we're saying we're dead to sin, and now that we are alive in Christ. But the a Holy Spirit baptism is something that's subsequent because God then now says, you are now living in my freedom, now I want to give you my spirit. And it's something that's subsequent, but it's still part of that one status change. Make sense? You know, the, the people of Israel didn't have to go through uh, the Red Sea multiple times. They went through once. That was all that was required. But I also want you to notice that all of these ones that Paul talks about, they are not actions that we do. They are realities in Christ. Okay? When we say that there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, all the baptism comes to our mind as water baptism is something we do. But when you look at every other one thing that Paul talks about, it's not something you do. Is there something that you receive? Is there something that we are in Christ? So the baptism is a status change that we receive in Christ. Symbolically, we practice baptism, uh, water baptism, to symbolize that. But it's not talking about the fact that, um, that there's no spirit baptism, etc., etc. Makes sense? If you want to talk about it longer, um, talk to me later. We do have to keep going. So Paul, in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4, talks about this unity this oneness. And then he switches gears in verse 7, and he starts with the word but. And but means something different, right? And so he says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And, and, and this is something important because the unity that we have in the body is not a uniformity, okay? We are not all meant to look the same in the body of Christ. We don't need to talk the same. We don't need to behave the same. We practice unity with the bonds of peace, but each one of us has been graced differently. So we are united, but we are not uniform. We are united and we are diverse. That's what Paul is saying here. And we are united because of our diversity as well, as Paul is going to describe in a moment. But this is important for us to catch because what Paul is saying is that there's a grace that 
Christ has specifically given to each one of us. <coughs> Excuse me. And that impacts the way that we live. You see, it's a grace that compels us, a grace that we are meant to be moving towards. It's an action-oriented uh, grace. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, um, and this is where it's a little bit weird, but this is what he says. He says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Whoo! When I read that the first time, I was like, oh, this is going to be a great message, isn't it? Um, and uh, there, there are a couple of controversies here because Paul quotes from Psalm 68. And um, I don't know if anyone has been doing, don't, don't look at that one yet, please. Take that off the screen. Um, and, and, and so Paul quotes Psalm 68. And specifically, if you, your Bible will probably say he was quoting Psalm 68 verse 18. However, when you look at Psalm 68 verse 18, it says, um, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and received gifts from everyone. It actually says the word received. So one of the controversies here is that did Paul misquote Scripture? Did Paul twist Scripture, which is like, oh, that's a, is a heavy one. And so uh, I did some digging, I, I did some research behind this, and one of the things that we need to realize is that um, these whole idea of chapters and verses, not in ancient times. There's something that came later for us to be able to be able to quote specific chunks of Scripture. That did not exist. Paul was not quoting Psalm 68 verse 18. He was quoting Psalm 68 full stop. And he summarized it in three lines. Okay, that's what Paul was doing. His whole aim wasn't to quote the whole thing out, but to draw the main point. And Psalm 68, when you read it, is a psalm of a victorious king. It's the psalm of God triumphing over his enemies. It is this beautiful psalm that helps us to understand that God is sovereign, God is victorious, God is over all. That's what it's all about. And Psalm 68, verse 35, the last verse, it says, You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. Now you can put it up. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. And so Paul was summarizing it when he ascended on high, when he took the captives, he, give, he gave gifts to his people. God giving gifts to us is because of his victoriousness. That's basically what Paul was saying. He was saying God gives grace to people individually, right? And he does it because he is victorious. He does it because he has already ascended. He does it because he has done his part. He is, he is victorious. He has accomplished what he needs to accomplish. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say it's partly done. Let me come back and finish off whatever I need to do. You know, he said, it is finished. I have broken the power of sin. I have broken the power of death. I have done my part. And now the Bible tells us that Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of God. He is seated, which means that he has accomplished what he needs to accomplish. And that is Jesus who then gives us strength to continue the mission that has now been passed on to us. That's what this is all about. The grace that has been given to us is not to make us feel nice and good. The grace that has been given to us is because Jesus has done his part and he's now saying you need to do your part. 
That's what this verse, uh, uh, that's what Paul is trying to capture here. And then he goes on, he says some really strange stuff. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And some people say, oh, look, this is a picture of Jesus going to hell after he died and him like uh, helping all the spirits that were trapped in hell come out from hell and, and be ascended and la da 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 Fiction. All right? There's just people kind of wanting to read some fun, cool stuff into the Bible. Uh, when it says lower earthly regions, what does it refer to? Here. I am on the lower earthly region. Why is it the lower earthly region? Because Jesus used to live with God in heaven, the upper amazing heavens. And he then came to the lower earthly regions. That's what this verse is talking about. I did a research, I looked at it. There are few theologians that believe that Jesus went to hell to suffer. All that kind of stuff is, is not biblical. Jesus died and rose again. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to understand. Jesus didn't need to go to hell to go fight Satan because Satan technically doesn't live in hell. He lives here in the lower earthly regions, until one day at the dead of the Lord that he is cast into the pits of hell, which is his place of punishment. Jesus didn't need to go to hell to fight because hell was in a place that is outside of his sovereignty. Hell wasn't given to Satan to rule. We've got to get that out of our Western mindset that hell is a place where Satan, with his little pitchfork and his little horns and his tail, is going, ha ha, we got Jesus down here. No, no, no. If Jesus went to hell, Satan would be scared. There was no fight. Jesus was victorious through his death and resurrection. This verse simply refers to him coming to earth. And that is already important for us because what kind of God would leave heaven to be here with us? on earth. God knows us intimately. He knows our struggles and our humanity, and therefore He knows the best gifts to give to us. That's what this verse is talking all about. And so you have been graced, you have been gifted in order to do something about the mission that God has given to the body of Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, Ephesians 4 verse 11 is sometimes known as the ascension gifts. It's called the ascension gifts because Jesus is the ultimate apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist, and pastor. Jesus, the ultimate of all of those five, what we today call, or what theologians sometimes call, offices. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, because he has done his work, he then distributes these offices to the body of Christ so that we continue to function. Because Jesus, while he is the ultimate example and we can go to him for help, etc., Jesus determined that it is better for us to actually be able to operate in these offices for the body of Christ. Rather than having one embodiment of all five offices, we now have multiple offices of apostle, multiple teachers, multiple prophets, multiple uh, evangelists, multiple pastors, all across the globe in the one body of Christ. And that's why it's called the ascension gifts. And um, 
It's important to understand that uh, when we call these officers, we mean that a person has really trained up their gifting in that specific sphere in order that they are actually impacting the body of Christ, the global body of Christ. There are some people that have been uh, really gifted with teaching and they have stewarded that gift to the point where they are teaching at a global scale. There are some prophets, there are some beyond that. But what we need to understand for our local church is that we have gifts that are in alignment with these offices. We might have the potential to be able to build towards being in the office to oversight the body of Christ, but we have been given giftings. I have been given the gifting, I've been given the gifting of a teacher. I don't believe that I have got an office of a teacher. Maybe one day uh, that is up to God. I'll just continue to steward that gift in the local house where I have been placed and continue to teach to the best of my ability. And the whole point of different people having different graces working together in the body is so that, let's read this again, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. Works of service, not works of personal healing and rest, but works of service. My teaching is to equip you for your usage of your gift. My teaching is to stir you on to do something about your gift that you have received. It's for you to serve. And when you serve, what does it do? It builds the body of Christ so that we are united, there's the word again, and mature. We grow up when all of us start using our gifts. We grow up, not you. We grow up when we use our gifts. Why do we need to protect the unity? Because when we are united and we are operating in the design and the plan of Christ, we grow up. What happens when we grow up? We attain the fullness of Christ. I'm scared that as a church body, that sometimes we get so caught up in my personal life that we don't understand that the revealing of the fullness of Christ is when the body is united and we are all working in that unity to help each other grow up. When we do that, that is the fullness of Christ. I don't think we're there yet. I think we are on our way. I think there's a lot of work that we need to do, but I hope that that's something that will stir you up. Verse 14, it goes on to say, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This is important here. Then we will no longer be infants. What is an infant? An infant is a dependent. But who are you being dependent on? This picture is a bit silly in the sense of like, why would anyone put an infant in the middle of a storm? Why? Would you put your infant, your complete dependent, in the middle of a storm where they're going to get flopped left and right by the waves? Would you put them in a little basket and say, off to sea you go because you're independent. That's your ultimate aim. No, but that's what we do. We isolate ourselves from the body and we become like infants, tossed by every wind of teaching. Some of us are educated more by social media than by the Bible. Some of us are educated more by voices outside the church than voices within the church. Why? Because you are not keeping the unity within the church where you are receiving sound teaching. 
and you're listening to that person and that conspiracy theory and that person. I recently did a study on critical theory. It is scary like heck because it says that every person's truth is their own truth and you can, your lived experience is more important than, the, than actual truth. As long as I've experienced it, I can make it my truth and you have to respect my truth. And then it goes on to say that people who have been oppressed have a special knowledge. That is called Gnosticism. It's been something that the church has been fighting since the dawn of the church 2,000 years ago. A person who has been oppressed has a story. Yes, they need to be listened to. Yes, but do they have more truth than someone else? No, not necessarily. Truth is founded in the Word of God. And when the body of Christ comes together, we learn about the Word of God, and that's how we know what truth is. So where are you getting your understanding and your theories from? Where are you getting your ideas and your, and your perception of the world? We need to go on because this is what we need to talk about. Verse 15, instead speaking the truth in love. It's what the body of Christ does. The body of Christ has truth and has love because we have Christ. Instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him. Here we go again. Paul is so concerned with our unity that we become mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together. That's a picture of unity again. By every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I hope that you're getting this picture because I'm emphasizing it as best as I can and I'm running out of time. That this unity growth happens when we are together. And then it says, this last thing I want to say is that it says that Jesus is the head. In our modern context, when we think of Jesus as head, we think of Jesus as authoritative ruler. Am I right? We say someone's a head, the head of state, the head of department, head of something. You are positionally the leader. In the Greek understanding, that is not what a head is. The head in Greek understanding is the source. It is understood as a source. And in Greek understanding, there are three particular uh, ways that the head is the source. The first is this. The head is a source of perception and understanding. It makes sense, doesn't it? We perceive and we understand through our faculties that are held in our head. When we have an illumination, it feels like it's coming from the head. And so Jesus as the head is, the, is, is where we get perception and understanding from. Why do you think grace, oh, sorry, truth and love come from Christ? Because he's the one that understands and perceives what love and what grace is. We don't know what love and grace is without our head. It's only when we are under the head that that's what we understand truth and grace to be. The second way that the Greeks understand the head as the source is that the head controls the blood flow in the body. That's what the Greek understanding was. And to some, uh, some extent, our brain does control where blood goes, etc., and all that kind of stuff. But they, they did that because they found that the two uh, biggest blood vessels are actually going up into the head. And so they just believe that the head controlled the blood flow. And so in that way, when it talks about the head, is this control of nutrients, is this control of how things flow in our body. Why we need Jesus at the head is kind of like John 15, where it says that he is the branch and we are the, no, he's the vine and we are the branches, sorry. It's the flow. We get our flow when we are attached to the body, which is where Jesus is the head or the source. Now the third one is a whack one, okay? So it's a bit weird, but this is ancient thinking. 
ancient belie- uh, thinking believed that the head was the source of semen. Yep, there I said it. Weird. And so what does this mean? It, it does mean that they just thought that all the functions of the body were actually done in the head. Perception, understanding, nutrient flow, and reproduction. Jesus as our head is not Jesus as our ruler. Now, is Jesus our ruler? Yes. But that is better done through the metaphors of Jesus as king, Jesus as sovereign, Jesus as deity. All of those words, they are all important. And they show us as Jesus, as authoritative ruler. But when it says Jesus is our head, it is saying that Jesus is our source. This is an important concept that we'll come back to again later in Ephesians. That's why I want to bring it up today. But I wanted to finish off, if we can't get the band up, I'm sorry. There was just so much I wanted to cover this morning, and there's only half of chapter 4. We'll come back next week. Um, But this morning, I really sense that we might not understand grace well. Or maybe through what I'm saying this morning, there's a sense of like, I want to know what God's grace on me is. I want to know how I'm meant to live. I want to know how I'm meant to contribute to the body of Christ. Maybe there's this understanding in you that you're going, man, you know what, I've, I've understood grace as this thing for me, but I haven't understood it as it was given to me for the body of Christ. And if that's you this morning and you're kind of going, God, what, what is it that you are gracing me to? What? In what alignment, maybe with those five ascension gifts? Have you got a teaching gift? Have you got a a prophetic gift? Have you got an evangelistic gift? Have you got an apostolic gift? Have you got a pastoral gift? Which one am I? How am I supposed to do that? Well, it's a journey of discovery. And sometimes the journey of discovery starts by receiving prayer, by receiving a confirmation, and by stepping out and trying things out. So this morning, I want to close by just inviting people who want to receive prayer, who believe that, oh, well, who, who desire to understand the grace that Christ has apportioned to you for the body of Christ. Maybe you're lacking a bit of clarity as to what to do with your grace gift. And that's great. Let's pray about it. Let's, 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 let's see what God says. I know we've run straight out of time this morning. And so can we just get everyone to stand? I'm going to pray and I'm going to close there. And then we're going to give space for people that want prayer for that reason to understand or or to activate perhaps the grace gift that God has given to you more in this next season. Dear God, I thank you that our calling has been to the body, not to be isolated people by ourselves, but because you have called us to this body of Christ. I pray that we will make every effort to keep the unity, to protect the unity that you have called us to. I pray that you will help us to understand how you have graced us to operate within the body so that we can mature, so that we can grow, so that we can uh, uh, be able to experience the fullness of you in our lives. I thank you, God. I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.